Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. And welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, was your TikTok completely taken over by Couch Guy TikTok this week, or is that just me? Girl, you know I don't got the TikTok. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, so there was a while where Alabama sorority TikTok just suddenly became what everybody was forced to look at. I caught up with at. that. I was very into Alabama sorority TikTok. Right. So you you did it like the the sort I like, of like lurked. You know, like people posted it and I could see like 10 seconds of it. Sure. Okay, so this week there was this the the new thing that inexplicably took over my TikTok was Couch Guy TikTok and it was a video of a girl surprising her boyfriend at college with a visit and the vibe in the room being very off. Okay, I saw this on your your repost, so I did see that that was fucked up. There's a lot of controversy around that. <laughs> they're, they're, they're treating it like this is a Pruder film. It is, cr- I don't know how this happened. I need someone to tell me why this won't, st- I don't care about these people. I'm sorry, I just simply do not care. It's, there was a lot of deconstructing, like, was he with the girl next to him? Were they surprised to see her show up? Like, well, I, I agree. And then I was like, Alyssa, the morning show is back on focus. <laughs> okay, that's, I wish I would have done that instead. This week, we are joined by Elliot Stephanopoulos, Kieran Deal, and Aaron Haynes to tackle the following questions. How can Instagram make people feel less bad about themselves? What happens when too many people lose faith in institutions? What fuckery is the Supreme Court about to get up to now? And what would happen if your shit-talking group chat was subpoenaed? All this and more right now. Okay, uh, there's a lot of real shit happening all over the world. Um, Like, it turns out there's a... A global network of countries and including some American states that are tax havens for mega wealthy people who are possibly, uh, you know, cheating the system. There's mm. that, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Pandora mm-hmm. papers came out and everyone was sort of like, yep, okay. And then it also turns out that in France, the priesthood was essentially a pedophile club for decades. And the French, the French are like, no, that's too, look, Catholic Church, tone down what you're doing so you know it's bad. Um, those things are going on. Those things are going on in a real way, and it is horrible, and I wish that that's what people were talking about, but instead we're talking about uh, Kirsten Cinema using the bathroom and Ugh. people being mean to her there. No, look, as someone with IBS, I would never want anyone following me into the bathroom, but, like, girls got bigger problems. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like there's, look, if we're just talking about, we, we're not going to go deep into this, but if we're talking about cumulative harm that is done, the cumulative harm of going into the bathroom to bother somebody, which isn't nice, uh, is much dwarfed by the cumulative harm of blocking aid for millions and millions of American families 
uh, because you are being paid off by a corporation. I'm just going to say, like, as a utilitarian, one of those evils is much, much greater than the other evil. And uh, yeah, and let's let's move on from there. Um, So here's a good thing that happened this week. Uh, The Biden administration officially ended a ban on abortion referrals at federally funded clinics. So that was a what was known as a gag order that withheld uh, family planning money from places that even mentioned abortion. Alyssa, can you go into a little bit more of what like this means and sure. you know what it will mean for people who need these services? Well, so one, we're so glad about this. It is officially referred to as Title Ten, and the problem with uh, the fact that these clinics couldn't mention abortion is that if you're a clinic, you probably want to give people all their options. So these clinics provide things like wellness exams, life-saving cervical and breast cancer screenings, birth control, contraception education, and they test for sexually transmitted diseases and HIV. So we are really glad that these clinics can now do all the things that they are supposed to do, which is give people who go to them all of the uh, healthcare, reproductive care, and information they need to make decisions about their lives. Mm-hmm. Here's something that always bothered me about things like gag rules and mandatory speeches that doctors have to give to women who are seeking abortions or any anybody with a uterus seeking an abortion. Um isn't that a violation of the doctor's free speech to force them to give yes. less than ideal? I don't understand this. Yes. <laughs> like, to, it's it's not even just like, I mean, look, you could, it's forcing them to omit things. It's forcing them to give information that isn't in the patient's best interest. That seems like a First Amendment violation to me. It does. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that most of the Title X grants typically go to clinics that are run by state and local health departments. In uh, 2017, there were some statistics. 21% of patients in the Title X program were identified as Black or African American, and 33% identified identified as Hispanic or Latino. This affected transgendered people. Like, I'm glad I, I'm kind of like, why didn't they do it a little sooner? But so glad that they did it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not the president and I never will be the president. But if I were and I were coming in on the heels of a Republican administration, rolling back a Title X gag rule would be the first thing I did. Um, But thank you for doing it. Yes. Thank you. Delayed. Thank you. I know you had other things to worry about Biden administration, but thank you for doing it regardless. Okay. We have a really exciting conversation with an actual teen. Uh, which is fun. Um, So I want to get to that. But before we do that, I think we have two toasts this week. We're going to be positive before we get into the Super positive. So I will do the first one because I know last week you guys, I was so excited about Fat Bear Week. And uh, I rolled the dice. I saw Holly going all the way to the end of my bracket. She got knocked out in the first round. But Aaron, your boy, Otis, Made it to the end. He was your bracket. You are the champion. And may he sleep or hibernate a wonderful winter full of salmon in his belly. I picked Otis because I think Otis has a, is a great name for a fat bear. Oh, and he's I, a chonk. I, liked, I loved his attitude. Um, I loved his <laughs> I loved his general vibe. I think Holly is great. Holly has been a real like hero and she's a super mom of a bear. 
Um, but Otis gaining uh, all that weight is just really inspiring to me. And I just feel, I feel, I feel validated and vindicated by the fact that my choice for Fat Bear won. Um, we need to take I, our wins where we can get them. I know. I should have made a bet. I should have like placed a bet. I, it's whatever. Um, we were just watching the episode of What We Do in the Shadows yesterday where they go to Atlantic City. And uh, I was like, gosh, I'm glad that neither of us like to gamble. But I maybe I should like to gamble. Um, no. No. It's, there's other things to do that are better. Um, okay. Second toast. Everyone who listens to this show more than a couple episodes of this show knows that we really are big fans of LeVar Burton here. We both yeah. have like just deep affection for everything that he's done for literacy among children. He made me love the library. Like he totally. made me love going to the library and get really excited about buying my um, my niece and nephew's like books for Christmas every year. Can't wait to buy like cute library books for my uh, my forthcoming child. I'm going to force them to listen to me read to them. Um, <laughs> LeVar Burton is just a great positive presence in American culture. And he was just named the Grand Marshal of the 2022 Rose Bowl Parade in Pasadena, California, which is a great honor. And he totally deserves it. And I'm so excited for him. I hope that he continues to be like this sort of like a Dolly Parton type figure, like just beloved across all ideologies in the U.S. Let me tell you, when his vaccine comes out, I will be first in line. Oh, 100%. The LeVar vaccine. But he, I'm really excited for him. So exci- I'm so excited. I'm even wearing a Rose Bowl sweatshirt today. But you didn't know. <laughs> and you, I didn't see, even know. You didn't. You must have, like, sensed the vibes. Like, you were like, it's something with the Rose Bowl and positivity. And it's must have been something. It's amazing. We're so excited. I'm, I can't wait to watch the parade. Uh, me neither. And I'm not going to be watching the game because college football at this point bores me. And I encourage people to fight me on that. You've gone it- big time. I mean, look, Wisconsin's not having a great year, but my husband's Penn State. And so maybe one of us will do pretty well. <laughs> oh, I, I just Notre Dame football makes me want to just lie face down on a dirty floor. So um, I'm skipping it. I'm skipping, paying attention to uh, paying attention to other sports. Um, okay, let's take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the bad week for Facebook and Instagram. And we're back, Alyssa. You know how much I love astrology. I don't love astrology. We should. <laughs> We only like to use Mercury in retrograde as an excuse for fucking stupid shit. (laughs) Yes. But here's the thing. I live in California and you absorb astrology. It just goes into your pores. You just have to learn about it. Otherwise, they kick you out of the state. It's like having a car that has really bad emissions. You just aren't allowed in California unless you understand astrology. Okay. So it has been a bad Mercury retrograde for Facebook. Um, That lead you will never see in a business section, but I would like to point out that economic forecasting is basically astrology for dudes. Um, (laughs) So we're just going to go with that. Um, So no, seriously, it's been a really bad week for Facebook. Um, There was a report from the Wall Street Journal that revealed internal documents about Facebook sort of having all of these problems that were being 
either uh, downplayed or unaddressed, but Facebook was aware of them. Facebook contributes to human trafficking in the Middle East, and there's very little being done about that. Facebook has contributed to war and genocide, political misinformation. It has contributed to a rightward shift and a more extreme shift in politics globally, and Facebook knew about this. So I want to say full disclosure before we get into this story that I write a newsletter that is posted on a Facebook platform. Like Facebook is ubiquitous. It is impossible to get away from. Um, But, you know, just because I post a newsletter on a Facebook platform, that doesn't mean I can't talk about it when it's in the news. So we're going to talk about it. Um, Let's talk about it. What was the thing from the report that you found to be the most disturbing, Alyssa? Oh, I mean, there was so much. But one of the things I thought was the most repellent was that uh, they have been studying, Facebook has been studying the effects of Instagram on teen girls for the last three years. And they know shit like the fact that among teens who reported suicidal thoughts, 6% traced their desire to kill themselves back to Instagram. Ugh. Do you ever look at social media like Facebook and Instagram, to a lesser extent, Snapchat and TikTok, and think, holy fuck, did I get lucky that that was not around when I was a kid? I mean, the fact that I at least could just like go home and escape school, you know, or at least just use the fucking ported phone, the wall-mounted phone to call my friend, uh, I think definitely was good. This is, I can't imagine. I can't imagine, but that's because I'm old. Yeah, if Facebook came out my junior year of college and we called it the Facebook at the time and you couldn't put like more than one picture up and we took pictures of each other with digital cameras, like our phones didn't have cameras in them. We brought- Email, email yeah. came out my freshman year of college. Ooh, wow. Yeah, the po- <laughs> and, and you got your acceptance letter via Pony Express. I did, I did. Uh, um So uh, this week also, another thing that happened for Facebook is the source of these documents to the Wall Street Journal was a former Facebook employee, a whistleblower named Frances Hagen, who uh, testified before the Senate this week about the effects of Facebook's continued non-addressing of issues that it knows that it's causing. Um, And it it was kind of a blockbuster, it was a blockbuster morning of her testifying to things that I think a lot of us kind of had an inkling about. Yeah. You know? Um, So, you know, we can talk, there's a lot of things we can talk about here, a lot of things to unpack. But one of the things, like you said, Alyssa, that we wanted to get into was the effect of Instagram on people's minds and the effect of Instagram on people's self-esteem and social lives, and especially people in groups that are the most vulnerable to influence by Facebook and Instagram. So we found a real life teenager. We found one. <laughs> we in the wild. A, we found a real life teenager. No, we we wanted to talk to somebody who has like a personal experience growing up with Facebook and Instagram. So today we are joined by Elliot Stephanopoulos. She's a freshman at Brown University. Elliot, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, we're glad that you're here. So we'll start kind of with basics. How old were you when you first signed up for Instagram? And do you remember the first thing you saw on Instagram that made you feel bad? Um, I probably first got Instagram, like, when I was 13 or 14. No, honestly, maybe younger than that. 
But I remember I was really pissed off because when I got it, I had waited so long. I think it was 13. That was like the requirement at the time to have an Instagram. And my little sister, she was 10 at the time. And because I got one, she got one. And I was like, that is so unfair. (laughs) Um, I remember like Instagram at the beginning, like my sister and I would post like cupcake recipes. It was very fun. Um, I don't really remember the first time it made me feel bad. But I always liked Pinterest has always been my favorite form of social media because like my friends don't really follow me. And it's about sharing photos, but not necessarily your own and just curating them. So I always found Pinterest to be a little better in that in that category of like the sharing images part. But I definitely think as I've gotten older, Instagram has like impacted me negatively more just because I've sort of had the app till like basically when it came out and I've sort of evolved with it. Like I've been a teenager through the whole time that like Instagram has really been used. Mm -hmm. And because you're a teenager, I mean, being a teenager, no matter how cool you are is like awkward. Um, Do you ever scroll back through things that you posted and think like, oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) Like all the time. I am very lucky that my parents instilled the fear of God in me about social media. And were like, if you post this, you're not going to get into college. And I was always really scared of that. So I never posted anything bad. So if I ever get canceled, it's not because I mean, I'm not going to get canceled. I'm sure of that. But (laughs) famous last words, Elliot. (laughs) I'm sorry, but knock on one. But like, I was always very aware of Instagram. I was like, never post anything that could be like there's even like a beer bottle in the back that's by dad's I'm not gonna post it like I was always very aware of that which I was lucky about and when I was younger like now I'm 19 which is a little bit harder for my parents to control but when I was younger I was like not allowed to post bikini photos not because my mom didn't want me like being confident in my body but because even if my Instagram was private there's always hackers and child predators and just sort of feeding into that. So I was always very aware of that aspect of Instagram. Hmm. So I think I was lucky that I had parents who were like, keep it fun and photos of your friends instead of making it something else. Mm-hmm. So that definitely impacted my experience. Cause I think if I hadn't had that, I'd probably post a lot more things I would be embarrassed of, but the mm-hmm. stuff I'm embarrassed of are like, Photos that I go way back, which I've already deleted, but they're like me with the new Kylie Jenner lipstick when they just came out (laughs) like five years ago. And I was like, which color do you guys like more? Or another one where I did like goth makeup and I was like, I'm going to scare my dad because I'm doing really dark (laughs) eyeliner. Like it was so stupid. (laughs) Do you? So Elliot, here's the thing. So you're very careful about what you post. Yeah. Who are you very careful about who you follow? Like, have you curated the people who you follow? Are there people who you've unfollowed because they made you feel shitty or they tried to tell you something about yourself that you were like, I know that's not true. I wouldn't say curate because there's a big, I'm not sure if you guys know about this, but there's a big thing with my age group called like ratio. So it's like, you want to have the same amount of followers as the number of people you follow. And I never cared about that because I always wanted to follow people because I was like, because oh. even if I didn't know them, I wanted to follow them. Some of my friends are very like Instagram is just to follow my friends and people I know and I respect that. But I'm like, I want to see what Gigi Hadid's posting. So I'm going to follow her. Um, but I can't think of someone I unfollowed because I felt bad. But I definitely reality check with a few of these Instagram accounts that just like expose Photoshopping because sometimes mm-hmm. I'll be like, 
oh my god, I literally am doing, I've been doing her YouTube workout routine for three weeks. What the hell? I don't look like her. And then you see that like, there's a lot, there's photoshopping you and Photoshop videos. So for my friends and I, we can like have fun and appreciate it, but know when to reality check. It was something this summer, my friend and I were feeling really insecure. And we looked at that account and we kind of felt better because we were like, we don't Photoshop our photos, but if we did, it would look the same. Did you, when you were in, when you were in high school, did you ever know anyone who was bullied on Instagram or people who were targeted or harassed? I mean, pretty much all my friends until they were 18 had private Instagram accounts. I mean, there's definitely like, I get a lot of creepy requests. I'm private, but I get like creepy DM requests that I have to go through. And sometimes my dad has to deal with. Um, And I feel like that with my friends, it's a lot of like weird old dudes being like $5,000 for photos of your butt. And you're like, have to block them. So I wouldn't say directly targeted or like bullied on social media, but I would say the main like targeted aspect is by like older men who find young girls on Instagram. Hmm. And your, your sister was on it when she was 10, which is like, you know, in, in technically in violation of the user yeah. agreement. Oh my but God, I thought it, oopsies. Yeah, I mean, but nobody, <laughs> but here's, I think there's so many people who just like don't, the fact that you were 13 when you were on it the first time kind of makes you an outlier. Like a lot of people are getting yeah. on Instagram when they're like under the technical well, like have, lowest like, age. My mom has friends who have babies and they have Instagram accounts. Obviously I don't use it, but like they have the handle. Uh, and it's cute because I get to see my friend's babies, but it's also like, oh, oh my God, they have like an existence on the internet, even if it's private. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is weird. And it's sort of like inescapable at this point, you know, like it doesn't really matter if you try to go totally off grid. If you socialize with anybody who is connected on yeah. the internet, you're going to be on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so a problem specific to Instagram is so-called social comparison, which is assessing your value in relation to the attractiveness, wealth, success of other people. Do you ever experience that? Or does the fact that you grew up with Instagram being such a part of your life, are you kind of, do you have like a savviness about it that I think other people who didn't grow up with it have? Yeah, like I think this is one thing where my mom and I experience Instagram differently, where, I mean, she also has a public account, but she gets like very absorbed in the hate comments and will like look at them and read them. I'm like, why do you do this? Whereas because I've grown up with Instagram and get like creepy guys DMing me and also like with my dad in politics and during Donald Trump, like it was very divisive. And so I was, it was very easy for me to get tagged and stuff and be like delete or like get commented on something and be delete, where I feel like it's a little bit harder for my parents to do that because they're not used to getting that criticism so fast. So that's a generational gap I've noticed. So you think that Instagram is like unhealthy for adults in addition to being like unhealthy for teens? Like it sounds, it sounds like that's been your observation. I think the problem I've always had with Instagram and this is just me personally, more than like body comparison, at least, it was was like this feeling of being excluded. And I think that's also something my parents experience on social media because their friends will post a photo at the dinner and they're like, oh my God, why weren't we invited? And that's <laughs> sort of been my whole existence is because I've had it like all my middle school, high school and college life is, oh, someone posts from a birthday party and you weren't invited. And mm-hmm. that's sort of where I feel the most like sting from Instagram And I guess when I think about like my youngest memories of being hurt by Instagram, it was stuff like that, like girls posting 
at a birthday party that I wasn't invited to and being like, oh my God, their costumes look so cute. Or like a Halloween party that you weren't invited to. That's where I found it the most damaging. And I think maybe just because like, I don't know, I guess savviness, like I'm able to like extract myself from comparing to celebrities where I feel like it's a lot harder with my friends. Like I'll look, or even not people we're friends with, but oh, this girl was in a grade above me at my school. So I follow her. And I see her post on Instagram. I'm like, oh my God, her friend group is so, like, I didn't really have a steady friend group in middle school. I'm like, oh my God, she's a friend group and they're so cool. I'm so jealous. Or, oh my God, they posted such a pretty photo. They went to this museum. Now I want to go to this museum. It was a lot. I found that more, I mean, that's a very (laughs) bland example, but I found it a lot more like easier to compare to girls who were similar to me. So girls who went to my school and I'm like, Mm -hmm. They're so pretty and they're so cool. How do they balance school? And they go to all these cool concerts. So that that is sort of where I'll feel bad. Or even with my own friends, I'm like, how do they take such good photos? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it almost feels like a diet, like being on Instagram and like, okay, so you're not invited to X party, Y party, Z party. By the way, I didn't have a friend group in middle school either. So whatever, solidarity. (laughs) I, I, Um, I firmly believe, which my parents have said, if you, if, people were mean to you in middle school and high school, you're going to be a stronger person. And I make fun <laughs> of my sister for this because she's always been like Miss Popular, Miss Social. I'm like, we're different because of this. This is like the one reason we're different. <laughs> I mean, having a chip on your shoulder and being able to amuse yourself by making jokes about the people around you is like a superpower. Um, anyway, I, I wanted Thank to you. say that. <laughs> um, so... I think like you bring up an important point. So Instagram shows you ways in which you're being excluded, but it also kind of in a way makes you feel like you're included because you're scrolling, yeah. you're you're seeing it. And so it's like this like aspartame version of actually being there where it's like not providing you any nutrition, you're not getting any experience, <laughs> but you think you're getting the experience yeah. of being there. Which is super interesting. I definitely feel that with stuff like I, my whole relationship with Instagram is very back and forth because I'm like, oh my God, I get to connect with these people who I wouldn't talk to that much. And I'm probably just like in terms of college, I'm probably more in contact with people than I would be from my high school because of Instagram and Snapchat. And I that I would be if it wasn't for that. Um, so I'm grateful for that. But then at the other hand, there's obviously like, oh, but I'm excluded So everything with Instagram for me goes really back and forth because I feel really excluded. But then I love like with fashion week when the designers live stream their shows so I can watch it. So it's constant. I'm con every issue I have with Instagram. There's always a flip side. Mm -hmm. So Elliot, I know, you know, that I, I get served ads and that my algorithm, you know, the more I like something, the more I see something, but the ads I get are creepy as fuck. I mean, it's like they have invaded my brain. Oh, me too. And so I was curious, what kind of, since we have learned that Facebook and Instagram are tracking our every thoughts and that they are targeting young people, which they said they weren't years ago, but they are, what kind of ads do you see that you're like, what the fuck? Well, this is actually crazy because I was just in American advertising, which is a class I'm taking. And we talk about this all the time and like how all this body image stuff came from like three main images of body image from like the 1920s. And we've talked all about like surveillance and targeting, which 
it, it's crazy how my American advertising class, I bring up more than any of my other class. Like I'm in an intro to American politics, an intro to 21st century film is easily the class I discuss most because it impacts everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely creepy ads where I'll be on like the Sephora app and looking at a lipstick. And then the next day, the lipstick's like being advertised for me. And I'm like, okay, like I <laughs> is my phone tapped? Like, okay. I don't shop off Instagram, which I think helps in a way. Because I know my friends who shop off Instagram say their ads are insane, but I definitely have experiences where I'll look at a pair of jeans and then two days later, there's like a model wearing the pair of jeans on the sponsors page. And I'm like, well, they look good. Like, yeah, I see what you're trying to do here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's funny because when I was like doing some research for this episode of this show, I was, you know, kind of looking up stuff and my Instagram ads got more thin spoey after I was like looking up stuff about body image and Instagram and like what it does to your brain. And I was like, I didn't want, I don't need ads for Kylie Jenner's bad bikinis. You know, like why are they (laughs) showing up on my, on my feed? I found it to be very odd. Um, okay. So, uh, just to wrap this up, Elliot, what would you like to see Facebook do or Instagram do to make it a safer place for people uh, like you or people even younger than you? Well, firstly, I think Instagram for kids is not a good idea. (laughs) I just think it's setting up a principle that everyone should be on social media from whatever age, which I don't think is true. And I think their claim that it will be ad-free is incorrect because Instagram is always with ads, even if they're direct or indirect. Because it's like, at least for me, when I was like middle school, elementary school, Teen Vogue was always more exciting than like J14 because it was for older kids. And then when I was actually a teenager, Teen Vogue wasn't as exciting. Vogue was exciting because it was for it was older and mature. And so I just think creating Instagram for kids, it's just going to want people to just get be like, OK, I'll just get an Instagram instead. So I think it's just like a weird path, like a weird middle thing that doesn't need to exist for a thousand reasons. Um, What I'd like to see them change is, I mean, I don't know, because there's a lot of things that could be changed. I'm just not even sure how, like, if there's even a reverse that can happen with a lot of the things. I guess if they could figure out a way when a photo is posted, you can, they could figure out if it was photoshopped. I'm sure they have that technology and put a banner that says, this is photoshopped. This is edited. This has a filter. Because I think then people wouldn't have to search the internet to find the unfiltered, unphotoshopped versions. I think having that disclaimer, like they have, like, this is fake news or this is not true about COVID. I think if you're going to do that about our physical health, why not do it about our mental health? Mm -hmm. That's a great idea. And if you had it to do over again, if you could go back in time and advise your 13-year-old self whether or not to get on Instagram, would you tell yourself to wait a couple years? Or are you... You, you would have still got on no. Instagram at 13. Because when I was younger, a lot of my friends also didn't have it. So it was much more like Pinterest, which I like. And it was just about sharing photos and following people I thought were cool. And I thought were posting cool photos. So I wouldn't because I think I started Instagram when it was more positive or maybe just felt more positive to me. And so mm-hmm. I think if I got thrown into it at an older age when it was more intense and focused on body image and beauty and social comparison, then it might've been harder because it would have been more like jarring. Whereas like I had a slower transition into it. Mm -hmm. If you were 13 now, 
would you, knowing what you know, if you had a sister right now who was 12 or 13, would you think she should get on Instagram? No, I'd say stick to Pinterest. You don't, like, you don't have to follow any of your friends. You can literally just follow, like, bloggers and you can find really cool photos or outfit inspiration or beauty tutorials. I mean, I still gave that advice to my sister even when it wasn't about Instagram. I just said, you know, like, it's really fun to look at photos and, like, plan things out. And I just think Pinterest is a better way to do it. I probably have, like, two followers. And Mm -hmm. I follow, like, a thousand people. And it's, like, they don't have likes. It's none of that. Like, you're just sharing photos or organizing photos that you like. So my sister has a board of, like, fall outfits. And her and I look at it together. Or when I was doing my dorm room, we had a shared album that was like dorm room ideas. So Mm -hmm. it's collaborative and it has that aspect and it's fun. And I just think it's healthier. Yet again, it's also photos of models. But if you're, you're getting rid of the social comparison, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, Elliot Stephanopoulos, thank you so much for joining us from your dorm room. I have to have you back again. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, (laughs) not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And 
Welcome back. We've reached the part of the show where Alyssa and I are joined by two wonderful, brilliant women to discuss something that's been on our minds in deeper depth than a news front page. Um, So Alyssa, what percentage of our texts back and forth do you think are bitchy indictments of people that are supposed to be serving the public interest? 70%. 70%. And does this, do you think that this is like, this is completely in one branch of government. Are we only talking shit about the executive branch? Oh, no, girl. We're talking governors, state legislatures, the Supreme Court. Everyone's letting us the fuck down right now. Mayors. We're mad at the mayors. Um, Although Karen Bass is running for mayor of LA, which is an exciting development for me. Um, Yeah, you know, I feel like you and I are people who are inclined to really want institutions to work and believe that they should be working. But you and I are both kind of falling down a a little bit of a, you know, a hillside of cynicism lately. Yeah. And know I, I don't like being there. I'm a, no. I am like to be a glass half full kind of gal. Yeah, but it's hard. It's hard right now. And I, we're far from the only ones. Uh, people are losing faith in institutions left and right. And um, we that's a problem. We need to do something about that. So, um I'm going to bring in our panel to talk about failed institutions, failed public trust in institutions, and how to fix it. First, bringing in somebody you know and love. She is a writer. She is an actor. She's a director. She's a comedian. She just got back from one tour. And if you happen to be in Boston on Wednesday, October 27th, you can check her out at Laugh Boston. It's Kieran Deal. Hi. Hi, guys. How are you? (laughs) Kieran, how was the tour? So fun. Oh, so fun. The Union Hall show was sold out and D.C. was amazing in terms of comedy, if not in terms of what it's doing politically. So that was very, very cool and got to meet with some uh, very nice Hysteria fans in person. So, you know, always a treat. Always a treat. Oh, that's they're so nice. They're the nicest. They're the nicest people. Oh, that's great. Um, Well, I'm glad the comedy crowd in D.C. was good. Um, I've been to a few comedy shows in D.C., and I feel like people there are so starved for laughter (laughs) that they flock to uh, opportunities to actually, like, engage with something that makes them happy. Um, That's just my armchair psychoanalyzing of of, uh, the punditry and uh, transient class in D.C. Um, Really excited (laughs) about our guest panelists today. Uh, She is a journalist whose work centers uh, politics, civil rights, voting rights, and race. She was a national writer on race for the Associated Press from 2017 to 2020. She's currently the editor-at-large for the indispensable news outlet, The 19th. She has recently written on the way the New Deal excluded care workers and how Build Back Better can rectify that. And she also has, according to her Twitter account, some important opinions on bacon. Erin Haynes, (laughs) welcome. (laughs) I do have very important opinions on bacon. Thanks for having me. I'm just emerging from my emotional support cabin in upstate New York. So, uh, yeah, I am raring to go and I have many thoughts about many things, bacon, politics and otherwise. Let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally. So, Aaron, let's just get into it. Um, The new Supreme Court term starting this month. Where do you, as somebody who, who works in this space, where do you see public faith in the Supreme Court right now? And how could the Supreme Court do further damage to itself? Well, listen, I mean, um, 
support for the Supreme Court is eroding. And, you know, I just wrote about this for the 19th with the one year anniversary of the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, you, what what I heard from people was, you know, that really the moment that we find ourselves in is a moment that she predicted, uh, is a moment that, frankly, a lot of voters were, were very concerned about, even as there were other voters who were very much working towards this moment, right? And so um, the Supreme Court that kind of helped usher in a freer and fairer America, whether we're talking about uh, voting or whether we're talking about, uh, you know, women's rights, whether we're talking about LGBTQ rights, uh, all of those things uh, feel to be under threat by a lot of people in this country right now, especially based on some of the court's recent decisions. And so looking at kind of what the calendar holds uh, in terms of issues, again, like voting rights and and, um, and reproductive rights, uh, people are, are definitely kind of side-eyeing SCOTUS right now and wondering what this is going to mean for their daily lives and are I think, much more aware of the role of the Supreme Court in their daily life and, and the reality that elections have consequences. And frankly, this is this is one of the biggest. Hmm. Yeah, I saw that only 40 percent of people now approve of the Supreme Court. Yeah, which uh, is which is down. I mean, less than a majority of, of the country at this point is, is, is uh, you know, approves of the Supreme Court, uh, which is not a good sign for them. And they are going on offense. You've seen, you know, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Justice Breyer, I believe, was was just out uh, out in public speaking. Also, Justice Alito, all kind of um, making public statements, um, kind of defending uh, the court in, uh, in a way that, that uh, certainly seems unprecedented for that many of them to be kind of out at once. Uh, but I think that, that it is a moment that speaks to the climate that, that we are in and, and the way that the country is feeling uh, about uh, their role in, in this democracy right now. Mm-hmm. And so can you give our listeners a sense of like what is on the docket? Because there's some big stuff coming up and some of it I've seen kind of talked about a lot publicly and some of it has kind of been flying under the radar. Um, what are some big cases that really could fuck with people's day? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think I think the main one that a lot, uh, certainly a lot of our audience is is paying attention to is uh, the case that is coming up uh, on abortion. And this was the case that uh, people were anticipating uh, coming up in uh, this month. But, uh, you know, the Women's March uh, that we just had over the past weekend was in, in anticipation of uh, that case coming up, you know, as soon as this week when the court came uh, back in session. But now that case uh, has been moved to uh, December 1st uh, on the calendar. And, and what uh, is at issue there uh, is, again, uh, trying to consider a, I believe it's a 20-week ban on abortion. And, you know, Roe right now, the statute that has been precedent for half a century, uh, you know, it's a, three, it's a three-month limit, uh, you know, for, for abortions. And so, uh, continuing to challenge that statute, obviously we saw what happened with Texas and the Supreme Court kind of sidestepping, weighing in on that. Uh, you know, did not portend well for for advocates who are worried about the future of Roe, uh, the future of of what this will mean for reproductive rights in this country, and and whether that's going to kick back to a state level. So that is probably the highest profile uh, case uh, that is on the calendar. Uh, that that uh, people are are keeping an eye on, uh, but there are certainly other issues. Uh, like I said, voting rights is 
uh, I believe on the docket, uh, this, this calendar uh, cycle too. But you know, the other thing that people are really watching and, and the thing that is, I think kind of getting increasing attention is Justice Breyer, Stephen Breyer uh, in his early eighties now, um, especially with what we saw the pressure around Ruth Bader Ginsburg during President Obama's term to retire her not uh, doing that and then what that meant in terms of, uh, you know, uh, Democrats getting justices on the bench versus President Trump, um, you know, Merrick Garland not being uh, appointed after he was nominated and then Republicans being able to nominate, several, uh, you know, a few justices in a row. And so uh, the question of what will happen with Justice Breyer is something that people are also paying attention to uh, as this, as as the court reconvenes, and 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 what happens at the end of this calendar with with his future. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on, uh, and I feel <laughs> like uh, the thing that I think is really frustrating to a lot of people who are maybe just kind of waking up or just kind of going through civics kindergarten, which is what a lot of people did, I think, after 2016. Sure. There's not like a lot of recourse, you know. No. Like, I, I mean, here's the thing, like. Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett can go into a confirmation hearing and lie their face off about what they're going to do or what they believe about something like abortion or voting rights or civil rights or LGBTQ rights, and then do the opposite when they're actually on the bench. And what are the consequences? People get mad at them online. And these are people who are also fairly young, right? We are talking about decades that they could potentially be serving uh, on the bench. And so that is why you have this conversation about expanding the court. Uh, we're supposed to get, uh, you know, the, you know, President Biden asked for, you know, kind of a commission to study whether or not that was feasible, whether or not that was something that this administration should do. Uh, he has stopped short of weighing in on that himself at this point, kind of saying that he's deferring to see what this commission is going to come up with, but uh, certainly there are a lot of Democrats now, uh, you know, given the makeup of, of the Supreme Court, that it is, you know, uh, you know, a conservative majority. Uh, to, I mean, you know, the options are few, <laughs> uh, you know, for, uh, you know, how to, how to um, change that and how to, how to impact that. And so uh, I think that that is definitely a, to your point, like as people are becoming more aware of the consequences and the role of the court, uh, they are waking up to the reality that they don't really have that many options to address things, you know, after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, Kieran, so you are in, you know, comedy, and that's not that's not something that like necessarily requires people to be paying attention to politics on a day to day basis or paying attention to the Supreme Court. Um, have you noticed people in like your circles in comedy and entertainment becoming more frustrated and uh, upset about a lack of responsiveness from like government institutions? I would say that when I was in Texas, when that ban happened, I was in I was in Dallas. And so what was what was wild was like the kind of the contrast between being in Dallas, like at that particular moment, seeing the day go on and like the explosion on the internet, you know, because I think that the repercut, like the repercussions of the thing take a, a moment to take place, you know, in terms of like watching what's going to happen to folks 
that are going to be affected by this law? And are you around those people at that particular moment? So it's interesting to see that it's all, whenever there's like a flashpoint, like a cultural flashpoint with something that's um, going on in politics, it's fascinating to see how that resonates to me, like both on the internet and how it, it's a very galvanizing tool for making what are probably changes that have needed to happen for a pretty long time. Um, it, I, I, for me personally, I will say that like, if you have two people sitting on the Supreme Court who um, have been like really accused of harassment, you know, and they got there, uh, maybe it's broken and maybe it has been broken. I, the, the idea that like, the idea that people who aren't reflective of what the nation looks like are able to, you know, kind of do the justice for everyone else is like a very, it, I don't know. I think it's insane. I, it makes me laugh. Like I, I, um, if, if the process and getting the person there isn't, isn't one that we can trust, then how, how is it surprising that, you know, we can have a court shift in a certain type of way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and the fact that, One of the things that I find really frustrating about watching the Texas abortion law go down, for example, is I don't think anybody on the Supreme Court is in an age group where they would maybe have to make a decision around a pregnancy. Yes. Yes. That's it's that. And then the other thing is that that it like I had a bunch of friends who are lawyers who went to Yale Law and a lot of those people are. and, And one of the things that really struck me that a buddy of mine said, he goes, you're not taught to argue what's right. You're taught to argue like how you can win. Like law is like a subjective Mm. idea. Law is a subjective idea. Smart people can argue anything. And then you write it in a certain type of way to make it sound like a thing, you know, that, that is quote unquote true, which is why I think so many normal, rational people were like, what the fuck? Like, how did this, how did the Texas thing go through? That doesn't make any sense, but you can, you can argue any point. De- using language and using statutes. And I think that's that's a wild and dangerous and interesting thing to remember. And it's good that it's good that it's a conversation that we're having now because like, do lifetime appointments make sense? You know, do do they? Does it make sense for somebody to be on the court until they're deep into their 80s until they die? Does that, I mean, I sound like, I sound like a radical. I sound like I'm just, <laughs> like I just flew off the plane from a deeply socialist country <laughs> here you're like she's like ah, I mean, texas is texas is my sort stick of a, in the air uh, <laughs> it's a radical <laughs> faction like the government of texas is a radical faction compared to the rest of the population of the u.s like greg abbott standing against things that are super popular literally everywhere else like it's it's a radical faction um Alyssa, i want to ask you this like as people's faith in institutions dwindles, as people are like, well, fuck the Supreme Court, as people are like, what, I think Congress has like a 15% approval rating or something like that. And they've really held steady, which is impressive to have <laughs> um, uh, such a group of people retain such a low approval rating for so long. Um, and, you know, Joe Biden, you know, trying to accomplish his agenda, kind of getting stymied uh, or slowed down or the political press is making it seem like it should be moving in a way that it's kind of doesn't really always work. What are the short and long term consequences of people losing faith in all of their elected officials and all of the people who are supposed to represent them? Shit. I mean, it's bad. It's how, it's how, you know, I think that, and I don't, look, this is this has been slowly happening for a long time, right? But Donald Trump essentially stoked this 
Nobody's on your side. Nobody's going to get shit done for you. Everyone should be disaffected. And, you know, and I hear you. But like he got fucking dick done. Right. I mean, he didn't do it, except he did. He did stack the Supreme Court. Oh, and he cut taxes for rich people and made he it did. more of a pain in the ass for self-employed he did, people. Which nobody felt the need to offset back then. No one was talking about adding shit to the deficit back then, motherfuckers. Nope. Um, but I think that right now it's it's like super interesting because I think at a national level, people don't trust their politicians at all. I think they think that like like I think that to Kieran's point. Come on, being a politician, being a senator, a congressman, a Supreme Court justice shouldn't be a retirement strategy, right? Like it should not be like, I'm going to be here until I die. I think that for us, the problem is that if people don't believe in the system, they're not going to participate in the system, right? And our problem right now is that we need more participation than ever. And so- you know, part of what I see that I think is so hard is like, especially if you're a Democrat right now, right? You're like, okay, when Trump and McConnell and fucking McCarthy fuckface were out there, like, and they had power, they fucking used it. They were like, we're going to do everything we want to do. And right now, I think it's frustrating for Democrats because they're like, you have the power, use it. And, you know, People have real problems in their lives. And when they listen to the news and they see their elected officials fucking, no, we're not going to suspend the filibuster for the debt ceiling. And they're like, are you kidding me? I can barely fucking afford my groceries. And so I think that the problem is that they're not using the tools they have to solve the problems that like people don't even care about, let alone using the tools they have to solve the problems that people do care about. Like, I think that if you are someone in this country who is struggling to make ends meet, you know, you don't think that the Build Back Better is some socialist strategy. The Build Back Better is literally making America on par with every other fucking industrialized country in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that You know, right now, the biggest problem we face both short-term and long-term is participation. And the thing is that if you look at the the MAGA, the MAGAs that are still out there, they're fucking showing up. Um, And I think that that is because they actually do think that the government is so corrupt that they're like, they feel so compelled. Whereas I feel that that Democrats and even some independents are kind of just like, I kind of give up right now. And I think that's a real problem. I mean, it seems sort of like, I mean, I've made this analogy before, but it seems sort of like Democrats are standing there with like, you know, a bag of seeds and a watering can. And they're like, I'm going to plant a forest. And it's and then there's a bunch of people with like a gas can and a book of matches being like, I'm going to fucking burn it down. Right. And like, what's <laughs> right. the quick, what's the quicker way to make a difference? If you're just talking about purely making a difference, the person with the gas can and the book of matches is going to be able to make a more quick difference in the life around them than the person who's like, I want to cultivate this. I want to grow this. So it's just, it's very frustrating. Aaron, I wonder if you could bring a historical perspective here, because you recently wrote about the New Deal and Alyssa just brought up participation and people feel like we need more participation. But, you know, at what point in America's history did we have like the optimal amount of participation? Like, you know, how were people excluded in the past? And like, how do we move forward in a way that is positive and and, and actually includes every American citizen? 
So, you know, before I get to that, I want to just circle back on Alyssa's point about participation, because I think, you know, at this point, you've got a challenge on both sides, right? I mean, as uh, the former president continues to raise the specter of, you know, a rigged election and voter fraud and the big lie, like, yes, that kept him from being reelected, but the big lie is still very much on the march in these state houses with voter suppression legislation continuing to be passed. Uh, but, you know, there is a um, psychological effect uh, to voter suppression as well. If people think that elections don't matter, uh, that is going to affect voter participation. And that could, I think we saw that even in Georgia with the Senate runoffs back in January, that could impact Republican voters as well who figure, oh, well, my vote doesn't matter either. Why am I even participating uh, in this process if you know the election is just going to be stolen from the, or if there's a feeling that the election is going to be stolen from the person that I want to win? Uh, you know, Arizona audit, obviously a function of that, uh, and to say nothing of the January 6th insurrection, because we don't say much about the January 6th insurrection anymore, but like all of that is a reflection of, of the erosion of, of voter confidence, right, uh, in one party. And then on the other, uh, when you see certainly the Black voters that I'm talking to right now, disappointed that voting rights has not happened, that police reform has not happened, now very concerned with what uh, of their priorities are going to get through in terms of uh, Build Back Better. The story that I have uh, up right now on the 19th uh, is, uh, you know, I talked to 74-year-old home care worker who is a second-generation domestic worker, right? Her mom was caring for a white family in Jim Crow era North Carolina uh, and working under, you know, a, a New Deal legislation that excluded her like specifically and purposely excluded women and women of color like her from, uh, you know, from labor protections when the New Deal uh, was passed, right? Like that impacted generations of domestic workers, of farm workers who we know are mostly black and brown, right? And so now uh, you have, you know, the Biden-Harris administration, which claims that racial inequality, addressing racial inequality is one of the pillars of this administration. And yet that is not something that Black voters are feeling, uh, you know, in terms of uh, policy priorities right now. Uh, you know, they proposed $400 billion specifically for home care workers to try to address some of that systemic wrong that happened during Roosevelt uh, and the New Deal. But, but it's unclear, frankly, because you've got Congress, uh, including some, you know, a couple of Democrats, uh, as we know, that are still haggling. Mm -hmm over what is what this deal is going to look like, what the final price tag is going to be, right, uh, for, for this bill, and, and whether caregiving, uh, which we know was, was uh, proven essential in this pandemic, whether caregiving is really going to remain a priority. Um, you know, that is certainly something that a lot of women told me in this, in this last election. A lot of uh, voters of color told me in this last election, including, uh, you know, a lot of the domestic workers. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think those folks right now are kind of also wondering if their vote matters. A lot of those people were first-time voters who were wondering, what did I just vote for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems sort of like uh, like moderates and centrists, so-called centrists and moderates, are like comfortable with a women and children last agenda. Like everybody else gets served before the people that need it the most, and it right. and it's, yeah, it's, P including including P.S. Uh, yeah, women half the half the electorate, the majority of the electorate, the majority of the population, and at least before the pandemic, the majority of the workforce, mm -hmm. but 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 are still treated like a special interest group. Yeah, and you know, I was just seeing something this week, Aaron, about 
nurses dropping out of the workforce because they're just burned out and there's sure. nobody and, and like they're dropping out of the workforce. Care workers are dropping out of the workforce. Teachers are dropping out of the workforce. And, you know, like you said, during the pandemic, we saw that without these people, society literally falls apart. Correct. Um, and so I wonder if maybe the debate is being framed incorrectly because, you know, we have all these people harping on numbers, 2.1 trillion, 3.5 trillion, 1 trillion, whatever. How much would it cost to not do this? Like, yeah, I, is there, is there yeah. anybody working on that? I think that's certainly the case that, that, uh, advocates and activists make to me, um, you know, about the way that this is being framed. And, and honestly, uh, you know, their frustration is that there is much more focus on the number than what that number would actually pay for the things that the American people would get. And, and, you know, that is a function of messaging from the administration. Also, what the political press is choosing to focus on, right? Because those are choices. Uh, you know, at the 19th, we definitely are interested in what the stakes of this legislation are for the people that voted, you know, for the folks that are weighing in on this legislation in Congress. Because that is, that, that, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily, they certainly don't understand what a filibuster or reconciliation, like they don't, that, that, that's not their concern. Their concern is what is in this bill that could potentially benefit me? You know, we write about things like the child care, child care tax credit, which people literally are seeing showing up in their bank accounts. Like they get that. They get that that is policy that affects them. They don't, you know, whether or not that was decided by reconciliation or filibuster or, or, or whatever, like that, that is not their focus. Their focus is what are you doing, especially, you know, in this pandemic that has crippled uh, women, uh, people of color, of marginalized folks? What are you going to do to address what I'm going through to make my life fundamentally different, which is what I voted for? Mm -hmm. um, Kieran, I wonder if there's anybody in particular that is in, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but is there anybody in particular in government who you supported or you who you were excited about who you feel like has been particularly disappointing or any issue that you feel like should be addressed or you voted to have it addressed and it's just simply not being addressed the thing with me i will honestly say is that i like i i'm maybe the exception on this panel i'll vote i vote every election etc but it's like my expectations of what of what a congress is going to accomplish are are low you know, it's like, I, I think I, it's sad. I think I am one of those people who's like, you should be very galvanized. But I do think there's a tremendous amount of money in poli like in politics. The fact that no one is going to advocate for campaign finance reform, which I think is one of the biggest things that would change who we can get elected because it changes the process by which a person with different intentions might be able to make it to um, a form of representation, but but this is how do you how do you make that happen, right? Like the best and the worst thing about America is I don't feel like I really watch the needle get pushed very far in either direction because of a system of checks and balances, and that is both a massive blessing and a massive curse. And obviously, like when you see somebody like Donald Trump in office, and you know there were so many egregious things happening, it galvanized the public because people were like, okay, you know, it's like after Thanksgiving dinner when you've been like eating through the holidays and you're like, okay, I got to go, I got to do something about this now. I mean, this is, this is, these pants really aren't fitting. We got to, we got to. <laughs>
we got to get out. We got to get out there. I mean, unfortunately, like I, but I, I'm curious when you have so much on your own docket and like a personal, like on a personal level, it's like, how do you create sustained civic engagement in a system that feels very, very challenging to like when it feels like you're just running your face into a wall Mm -hmm. again and again? I mean, like sometimes it feels like getting us to get discouraged is part of the aim of a minority party that actually can't win elections if everybody's engaged. Like discouraging us and and like making us feel as though nothing we do matters is like part of their game plan in a way. And maybe that's just me wearing a tinfoil hat, but it really feels like, you know, like especially with like Mitch McConnell pushing through Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, like just it just felt like a thing that they were just doing because they could, because they wanted to show us that they could and make us feel like there was nothing we could do to stop them. Um, and that just that just sucked. Uh, Kieran, you have a lot of relatives in the UK. I wonder if their attitude toward the process over there is as kind of pessimistic trending as most of like a lot of Americans' attitudes to, are toward their government. They had a lot of, I mean, they're, they have the NHS, right? Like, so the NHS is a really interesting one because that really affects people. That's how you get your health care. So it's a very like one-to-one, you know, when the NHS doesn't have as much money, it takes longer. You can feel that the lines are longer for you to get in an appointment, you know, or it's longer for you to get your surgery. Um, and then the way you approach that, I think there was a lot of disillusionment around um, Brexit, you know, the the remain, the leave remain and the vote of that and the the devastation of that. And remembering that countries, I think even in England, it's like so much of it is the way you you market to people, like what is the issue at hand, right? Like do people are people really aware of the stakes? My mom was there when like the first referendum was happening for Brexit and she goes, Kieran, this was so confusing. The way that this was pitched, the statistics, it was so confusing. So if you didn't have your own information, it was very easy to be, you know, kind of like worried that oh, all this money is leaving the country versus all of the good things about like, you know, being a part of the European Union. So much of it is the information that we get. And it's probably also, I mean, I know, Ryan, you've talked about this. It's like engagement on like the local levels, right? It's like, it's not just about voting in your federal election, but it's like the places when your area can change, when it's your city council, when it's those things. And and I guess my the counter to that is all of those things take a tremendous amount of time in a world in which people, I think, are are strapped and very busy and trying to just keep their heads above water. Mm-hmm. Alyssa, I want to pivot to you on this. Um, do you think that civic engagement is a cost that we're finding to, I mean, it sounds like, Kieran, to take what you're saying further, it sounds like civic engagement is like one of the things that falls by the wayside when people have to work really, really hard and all the time in order to make ends meet. So Alyssa, I wonder what your thoughts are on the possibility that civic engagement could be a casualty of people being overworked and undersupported. Well, I do. I definitely think that's true. And I also think, though, that if people engage and take what precious free time they have and then don't see results, that's really part of the problem. And so like in a smaller community, so up here where I live, you know, one of the greatest things, you guys, I legitimately got teary-eyed. The entire community got together and raised money to build a library. And 
everybody knew the point of the library. It was to help bring Wi-Fi. It's, it's broadband is not super accessible up here in some places. And so it was a, it was meant to give older people a place to go and like use computers. It was meant to be a community space. And the funny thing is, is that when they opened it, the library was built. Everyone helped raise money. It wasn't done through through taxes or anything like that, but it was, everyone in the community got together. There were Trump bumper stickers. There were Biden bumper stickers. There were Bernie bumper stickers in the parking lot the day that that library opened. And people were so proud that this had, that this is something now that was available to everyone in the area. And I think that there are so many issues that actually aren't political that are being politicized just because. And for us, it's like that's why I do try to make the time to go to things like that because it actually makes me feel better. Like going to the library fundraiser and then seeing a fucking library made me feel really good, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I think that when politicians of all persuasion showed up at the opening, it was like, see, this is something that everybody needed. I think part of the problem is that the local stuff I do, I'm such a believer in local because I do think you see more you see faster impacts of what you've been working towards, right? And the stuff that's happening nationally now is like, look, I'll tell, I mean, I'm a fucking brat right now. I'm like, I am, anyone who knows me for all the years I worked in government, you ask Pfeiffer and Favreau, I was the most annoying establishment institutionalist, like these things are a way for a reason. And the truth is, The point of Congress was to bring shit to the floor, bring bills to the floor, and debate on them. Like, Mitch McConnell just stopped having debate. Like, people, you couldn't couldn't even have debates on things anymore. And it just became this— this this mass of people who got paid for fucking tweeting at each other. And so I think that part of our problem, at least for me, is that we know what the Republicans will do to win. It's very clear, you know, I mean, and, and from soup to nuts, they won't stop at any cost. And so I think that for me, it's like, I just, I want, I'm like, we got like six more months, people, before this shit all goes tits up. And so like, what can we get done to help people and make them feel like, I mean, I'm talking everything. I'm talking about Bernie supporters who got on the Biden train and worked their asses off. I'm talking about people who had never voted before, who stood in line for eight hours so that they could help make change. And if there is just, if there is no change, it's 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 easy to see how the two most fringe fractions of the party will become more dominant, even though they are the minority, because they are so rabid they won't give up. And so that's that's what I see as sort of like one of the biggest ish is 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 a big issue for me personally to deal with in therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right, Aaron. Shout out to therapy. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I mean, that's another thing that everybody should have access to, but very few people do. Um, Aaron, I would like to close with you. Do you see a positive path forward for um, re-engagement with regular people and the institutions that are supposed to represent them? Like, is there a way that faith in like the Supreme Court Congress, the White House, how can those things be saved? 
Oh, wow. That's a big question that I, uh, that is probably above my pay grade. But what I, what I will say though. Erin <laughs> ends is, on the easy ones. She ends on the easy ones. She's like, on a, on a light um, note, can you fix it? How do you fix it? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, Erin, do you have a, any, a, a, you know, close this out on a high note. I don't have a high note. Uh, but, I, but what I will say is, you know, the thing about, the climate that we are in now, I, I think Alyssa spoke to this a little bit just now. I mean, it, it really does feel like we are um, looking at elections that will be a battle between voter turnout and voter suppression, right? And so, um, you know, convincing people of the stakes at this point, you know, with you know, unless you're giving people reasons to vote for them, you know, the argument may be that, you know, these people don't want you to vote. So, you know, you need to turn out to reject that, right? Like voter suppression can also be a very galvanizing thing. Like we see that, right? But like, we really shouldn't be in a democracy where voter turnout has to overcome voter suppression, right? But that is the moment that we now find ourselves in. That was really what the 2020 election was largely about. Um, and that should be unsettling for anybody who cares about how democracy is supposed to work in this country. You know, voter, voting rights did not used to be a bipartisan, I mean, it used to be a bipartisan thing. And now, you know, I think we very, we cannot, I mean, especially as, as a press cannot continue to kind of both sides the conversation around voting, voter access, election integrity, right? Like we, we cannot, but we cannot both sides that we have to call that out for, for, for what it is. But in terms of, um, you know, the, the thing you were saying about Re Republicans earlier kind of uh, going for broke, you know, the thing that they also say, the thing that, that uh, you know, Mitch McConnell would say is, you know, we're doing what our voters wanted. This is what our voters wanted. President Trump, for, you know, the promises that he made, he's like, I, I made good on those. The things that I told you I was going to do, I did them, right? And so I think that Democrats are now, um, you know, kind of looking at the folks that they helped to elect in the midst of a pandemic, right? In the midst of, in the face of voter suppression. And they are saying, we did our job in November. We are, we, we are wanting you to do yours. And I think that, that, um, to the extent that, that Democrats are able to convince their voters that they did do their job, that they did deliver on the agenda that they campaigned on, you know, I think that could contribute to voter enthusiasm. But to the extent that that is absent, I think that that could be an issue for them headed in the 2022, 2024 and beyond. Hmm. Well, let's hope that we can actually get some deliverable here. Um, I think I think I read that our uh, the maternity our the family leave proposal in Build Back Better would put us on par with Sweden in the 1970s. So uh, <laughs> hoping we can join the 70s Scandinavia. That sounds cool. Um, Sweden was not right. in the 70s. Oh Listen, yeah, it's throwback. Mean, throw, throw I mean, Sweden <laughs> continues to be ABBA a so like, soft counter argument. Sweden. <laughs> Swedish fish, the 70s, love it. 
<laughs> oh my god, Swedish fish, just in time for Halloween. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, oh my god, chaos. Uh, the chaos, the chaos you're causing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get Swedish fish after we're done recording. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, a little sanity corner before we send you on your way. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. And we're back. Let's get to Sanity Corner, and then we'll send you on your merry way. Alyssa, what is keeping you sane this week? You guys, so, you know, we're, like, softly tiptoeing into holiday season. And uh, it's, like, weird. It's the time of year when I miss my Oma the most because uh, she was just, like, the mistress of holiday things. And no one in my family really keeps up with the weird German things that she used to bake. So I have gone deep, deep into the internet and have used translate apps and found some of the German recipes that she used to make. And I would like you – and like you guys, I like turn the television off. I listen to like NPR classical music while I do it because that's what she would do. Well, she'd listen to German radio, but I can't get that. So uh, anyway, I would like you to know that downstairs right now is a German plum Schwechkekuchen. Uh, that I made and turned out it smelled just like she made it. I've been practicing it. Like, I don't like to practice things. If it doesn't turn out right the first time, I'm like, this recipe's fucked. But anyway, <laughs> this was my third one that I made. And it just, it's like, it, it's like, it just makes me feel so good. And so uh, next up is apple strudel. Um, most apple strudels are wrong. So if you are of Austrian descent and you have a recipe for apple strudel that involves some measure of sour cream, please DM it to me because I can't find it. And I know her recipe had sour cream. So anyway, thank you for listening. <laughs> oh my God. I love that you're having like your own personal Oktoberfest. Ah. And, and, you, know, you, you just, you just try and try again. Nevertheless, you persisted. And you That's exactly that right. Test. Thank you. We're here for you. You know, you, it's paying off. It's paying off for you. The next, the next episode should be in Lederhosen for sure. Okay. Oh, so wow. I, I was forced wow. to, uh, as a baby, they were called strumphosies. I don't know if that's the real word or just what my Oma said, but they, they, they don't fit my booty right. So we're going to skip that part, Karen. Thanks. <laughs> Pick, picks or it doesn't count. We need picks of that. We need <laughs> also, I love the most controversial take of this whole thing is like, you're like, a lot of the apple strudel recipes out there are wrong. Whoa. It was like, Apple what? strudel. Apple Listen. strudel controversy. Yeah, this Strudel Twitter is going to be really mad. Oh, they're going to be, they're going to like Let me tell you, I'm up. here for it. I need their support and I need their guidance. I, that's why I did it. This was my personal, my call to action. Ah. Hashtag, hashtag Austria. <laughs> um, Kieran, what is your sanity corner this week? 
as someone who just got back from a series of live shows, it, like I would say, like I both went to a bunch of live comedy and then I did live comedy. And it's being in a room full of people that are fully vaxxed, that have masks, that are being safe, that are laughing um, is so incredibly healing and warm. And I just feel like I was reminded about like that pre-pandemic spirit of like the gathering and how, you know, I think a lot of this episode we were talking about, oh, people are getting together and like not doing a good job doing something. And there's something about like what Alyssa was saying with the library, there's something about putting a, a group of people and having a shared experience together um, in human person that felt um, really warm and healing and and just did help to melt my cold, stony heart. And you know, whether you are at the stand or, you know, in New York or whether you're, you know, going to a local show wherever you live, I was like, this is a, it, there's something really, um, it, it reminded me why I loved it. And I hope that that's something that other people can appreciate. That's so great. That's like the most positive sanity corner you've ever. Thank you so totally. much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank that you. was touching. That's the I, most, was, that's the I most. am touched. <laughs> you're like, oh my God, who, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Aaron, what is your sanity corner this week? Well, you know, that was, that was very touching. Uh, but I'm afraid <laughs> I'm going to go have to go pumpkin spicy because, you know, yes, we, 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 we do, we do love to be around our, our, our Vax friends and neighbors and family, but, uh, you know, I'm actually trying to be around as few people as possible these days. I'm keeping this social distancing going. And as I mentioned <laughs> at the top of this, I, uh, just emerged from my emotional support cabin. I'm addicted to A-frame cabins, people. So send recommendations my way, your Airbnbs, your Instagram accounts. I'm there because I'm booking this shit nonstop uh, for the foreseeable future. Don't know when we're going to get out again, but I like the idea of nature. So I plan on doing a lot more of that, getting huggy with it um, in the woods, um, in my A-frame cabin, living my best life on Instagram, not really in the woods. Um, yeah, that, that's where I'm at. Emotional support cabins are, are my new thing is in the pandemic. Is that why you just, you put you put the idea of nature in quotes? I don't think people can see you. Absolutely, but, yeah. abso abso absolutely. Not, not, not really trying to encounter bears, raccoons, mosquitoes, et cetera. Not interested in that. Um, but, but like to look out the, uh, the big windows like, love that. Love to do that while I'm watching uh, my reality TV shows uh, and drinking <laughs> hot cider um, spiked. Got it. Uh, so it's like because, among, again, among it, not in it. Among, amongst. Correct. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm nature adjacent. Yes. Yeah, I'm nature adjacent. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Um, Aaron, I've got a good A-frame for you out in California. If you ever make it out here, it's like. Oh, I'm there. I'm okay. There. I've got a real Send good Send me the one. link. Send me the link and I'm booking that. A real good one in Idlewild, California, which is consider this consider this my RCP. Okay. Right now, right Amazing. Here. You all hear it. You all Amazing. Hear it. I'll, I was I'll, invited. I'll send it to you. And also because it's California, it's like nature but not bugs, which is like the main Ooh. appeal of that's California. That's my that's my favorite combination. Nature, yeah. no bugs. Exactly. Count exactly. Me in. Count me in. Like that's why I can't go to Florida. 
I mean, there's a uh, bunch of reasons. Well, I mean, correct. I was going to say that's yeah, sure. Chief all right, among, all right. I know. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. There's <laughs> all kinds of people who live everywhere. I am from Florida originally, so no. I'm oh, talking specifically of the you. bugs. I think there are lovely people in Florida. Oh, they're, they're scary. They're terrifying. Yeah, but the bugs specifically, yes, they're they don't need to be that big, but they are. They don't. They don't they need don't. to be. Okay, so they don't need to be there. <laughs> okay, so my sanity quarter this week is something that was kind of eating up the internet on Tuesday, and I want to get into it. Uh, so there was a story that ran in the New York Times about two writers who are now in, locked in lawsuits with each other. Oh uh, shit! Yeah. So basically, this is a, this is extreme writer drama, and by writer drama, I mean it's like slap fighting within writing groups. It is using another person's story without really giving it credit. It is shit talking on the group, te- group chat. It is people who like grab on to their own idea of, of saintlyhood and goodness and just cannot let go. And when anybody challenges it, they re- they react very disproportionately. So I'm going to give you a very Cliff's notesy version of this story. If you haven't read it, it is really, really good. So this is the story of a writer named Dawn who decided to give her kidney to a uh, an anonymous recipient. She wanted to be a living donor of a kidney. And that's great. I think that's a super nice thing for a person to do. There are a lot of people who need kidneys. But Dawn, for Dawn, giving the kidney was not enough. She needed there to be, uh, she she made it her whole personality. Uh, she started a Facebook group about how she gave a kidney away. She wrote all these posts about giving a kidney away to this guy. Um, and she is now a person who like, it's, it's her thing. Um, she discovered a couple years after this that uh, one of the people in the group uh, had written a short story about a woman who had given a kidney to somebody as a living donor. And she reached out to this woman and was basically like, you didn't say anything about my kidney donation. What's going on with that? It was very like, like she needed, it was like white savior type stuff. Like this woman needed recognition about her kidney. This woman she reached out to, Sonia, Sonia said, oh, that's so great. That's so interesting that you gave a kidney. Um, I'm really happy for you. Uh, Come to realize Sonia's short story involved elements that closely resembled things that Dawn, the kidney donor lady, had posted in this Facebook group about how great she was for donating a kidney. Uh, Sonia denied that anything was lifted. She said that maybe Dawn inspired her. Dawn, uh, at this point, goes, and Aaron, I know that you read this story too. I think this is a proper characterization. Dawn goes apeshit, completely <laughs> completely apeshit. I believe believe that is the technical term, yes. Yes, it's the legal term. She went apeshit. She tried to ruin Sonia's career because she had a hunch that Sonia had lifted elements of her story as part of the short story that Sonia wrote. Um, Over the course of the lawsuit, the group chat that Sonia was involved in was subpoenaed. So, what happened was my that, worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like, holy yeah. shit. So that her, the group chat was subpoenaed, and it turned out that Dawn's Facebook group about how great she was for donating a kidney was fodder for just 
a ton of shit talking in this group chat. And it turns out that Sonia had, in fact, used elements of Dawn's story directly ah! in her short story, it, including one of the one post that was originally lifted almost verbatim. And so at the end of the day, we have this woman, Sonia, who is, by all accounts, a gifted writer. She, she's, a, she's a woman of color also. Uh, Sonia, a gifted writer who had had stories published all over the place. Dawn, a less celebrated writer who wanted to be celebrated for her kidney donation, going after Sonia and trying to ruin her career and her reputation because ultimately Dawn didn't think Sonia celebrated the fact that Dawn gave a kidney enough. Is that correct, Erin? Is that a good summary? Okay, so first of all, this is insanity corner. You know what you're doing. <laughs> you know what you're doing. The, the, the chaos that ensued on Twitter behind, like Twitter is still lit behind Team Dawn versus Team Sonya. Um, my friends, my family, people I run across, like, are they inspiration for journalism? Absolutely. Like, you know, like they are. So, you know, on, on, on one level, like I could definitely get with Sonia kind of drawing inspiration from this Facebook group that she was lurk, clearly lurking in, uh, you know, when, when she, you know, got the, you know, the idea to, to, to write this short story that she wrote. I think, you know, it, and again, like maintaining that this is the thing that, that writers do, like, like they draw from, real life for inspiration for uh, their fiction. Like, sure, that's a thing. I think, you know, the part that probably sent Dawn over the top was the gaslighting. No, this had nothing to do with you. You know, maybe I took a nugget from here as opposed to like lifting the entire letter, you know, that you know that she had posted in her Facebook group. P.S. Yeah, like never subpoena me in the group chat because um, <laughs> yeah, that that's gonna be that's gonna be a problem because writers be petty and um, writers be shit talking. Oh my god, I'm on team nobody, Aaron. I'm on team nobody here. <laughs> I think that I think that you know, look, is it bitchy and kind of not maybe the very best way to act to like target and shit talk and gaslight somebody who clearly sure. has some issues. It's yeah. not kind. That's it was very unkind, but I mean, I'm, t I'm team mess. That's what I'm team. I'm <laughs> here for this entire story. I encourage everybody to read this thing from top to bottom. It was a wild ride. It was, it was a journey. And you know, when you cover politics, you need an escape every now and then. And this this was this was a welcome escape. Oh my gosh! Well, you know what? You talked about your reality TV shows and drinking cider. This was Absolutely. like a reality. It was like reality TV drama. Oh, it was definitely like real. It was tape. There was some table flipping going on. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think yeah. that I think that the thing, the ultimate, my takeaway was ultimately Sonia and the group of writers were being bitchy and mean, but Dawn was being insane. Like Dawn is being. <laughs> over the top at like popping into events. Yeah. Showing up at events. We don't want to ruin it for you people. You need, you need <laughs> to read this, but, but yeah, there, there's, there was a, just when you thought this doesn't get any more wild. It's like, nope, new rock bottom. So yes, yes. It's the, it is the story that keeps on giving. I'm here for it. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. And it also, also reminded me that it's really important as like, a writer or anybody who does creative stuff, surround yourself with people who do different stuff than you. Like, don't, 
Don't do or, the thing. Or, or, or surround yourself with people who will actually acknowledge you as their actual friend when right. shit goes down. Right. As opposed to Don who? Like, wow. Like that part, that was, that was my first clue that this was not going to end well at all. <laughs> <laughs> we actually weren't that close. It's like, oh, shit. Oh, no. Yeah, it's like when Donald Trump says he, does, he doesn't know somebody. It's like, oh, you did crimes with this person. You definitely <laughs> did crimes with this person. Um, okay. Aaron, thank you so much for coming by today. It was great having you. Thank you, Kieran, for coming by today. Welcome back from tour. Glad to have you on the West Coast again. Alyssa, thank you so much for being our ride or die. Thank you to Elliot Stephanopoulos for giving us a teen perspective on Instagram. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria for you next week. I am from another planet. This nation is Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, and Matt DeGroote. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. you can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.